Grace to you and peace, faith family. It is good to be here with you this morning. So how's your week been? I pray that as you have prepared your hearts and your minds to come and worship with us uh, this morning and gather with us this morning, that you have drawn your heart's attention this week to what God is doing in the midst of your life, in the midst of your family. And I pray that as we even continue down this road to Rome, as we have been continuing on for quite a while now, that you would begin to uh, look into your own lives and see how God is shaping you and forming you into the image of His Son and how He is using these things to, uh, to do that in our lives. When we left last time, last week, uh, if you remember that Paul was being tried before Felix, uh, the procurator. Uh, however, due to Felix's desire to please the Jews, <clears throat> he wrongfully imprisoned Paul. And then for the next two years, Paul would sit in a Roman jail cell in Caesarea. And then there comes this changing of the guard, if you will, this changing of leadership in this area by Rome to do what to do uh, due to what one historian states because of Felix's brutal intervention in a riot between the Jews and the Gentiles at Caesarea. So some Jews would go to Rome in order to persecute Felix, but it seems that these Jews were not supported by the Sadducees who supported Felix, which makes sense why Luke records Felix would leave Paul imprisoned as a favor. So while all this is happening outside, Paul, you and I, and Paul would be sitting inside this jail cell for two years. Two years. And at the end of this two years, the emperor by the name of Nero at the time, he would replace Felix with a man by the name of Festus. And unlike Felix, Festus seems to be a man little less interested in, in procrastination and delaying things. So you may begin to ask the question, hey, what's going to happen to us now? What's going to happen to the apostle? You would think he would be freed. You would think that, hey, we got this changing of the guard, <clears throat> and now he would be freed. Because if you remember with me as we studied, there was no wrongdoing actually discovered. And you would think that Paul would see that Felix is, he would hear the news throughout the, throughout the guard that Felix is being removed by Nero, and we have a new leader a new leader by the name of Festus was going to come. And I wonder if just for a moment, uh, Paul's uh, heart would have perked up just a little bit and said, finally, I can get out of this place because I've done nothing wrong. And so we would think that he would be freed, but that's not actually what happens. Ever happened in your life? God seems to delay in rescue. God seems to delay in what you were expecting in some way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, often it seems that as things play out, it's not quite what I was expecting, and it, it's definitely not what I was desiring. I was hoping to get on with it. And this begs the question for all of us. Is the God of the Bible able to work through the means of human responsibility in order to achieve His divine purposes? Is the God of the Bible able to work out His divine means, uh, His divine will through the means of human responsibility? And so this is where we pick up. <clears throat> All this is going on, and we're going to pick up here in chapter 25 of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 25, 
We're going to begin to read in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 22. Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 22. This is what we've entitled the trial before Festus. And as we read it, you're going to realize that that's not a brilliant title. It's literally what happens. This is the trial before Festus. So you got that going for you, which is nice. So join with me. I hope you have a Bible of your own as we pick up in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. (laughs) Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent no more, not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense against either the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing trial before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accuser stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. But they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a, about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, we come before you. And we see in this story, Father, are you working out your will among the means of normal human decisions? That God, oftentimes, even in our own lives, even in our own situations, maybe even over this past week, there were decisions that were being made, willful decisions by man who will be held responsible in our own lives, in our own circumstances, in our own situations. And yet, God, we often struggle with your delays. We struggle with your will. We struggle <laughs> with the directions that you have given. But yet, God, we face tomorrow with the impending question of what is it, what does it all mean? God, I pray that in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our deliberation, in the midst of our temporal realities and our temporal confusion, that God, we would still be able to trust in your good grace. And I pray, Father, that there's one in here who does not know you, that God, they would come to know you before it's eternally too late, that they would also deal with this man named Jesus, whom the Jews believe to have died, but Paul seems to believe has arisen. And that God, if though for those of us who do trust in you, who do believe in you, that I pray in the preaching and teaching of your word today that we would be further conformed into the image of your son and be prepared to meet tomorrow's day as well. Bless the teaching and reading of your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. We're going to start in verses 1 through 5 when we see Festus pressured. Festus is going to be pressured. We are reintroduced here to this man named Festus. In all of historical writings, he is only mentioned here in this writing in the book of Acts by who we believe to be Luke. And he is also spoken of historically in the writings of a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. His term, Festus's term, was very brief. He began his service in A.D. 58 and 59, so we can place ourselves temporally cal on a calendar annually in this location. So we know that right now we are around A.D. 58, A.D. 59. It was at the direction of the emperor Nero after the dishonorable discharge of his predecessor Felix. Festus would rule in this area for about two years, and he would die from an illness in A.D. 62. Josephus, a Jewish historian, would go on to praise Festus for his suppression of what they would call revolutionaries. So it seems to be that this man developed a good relationship with the Jews, a better relationship than did his predecessor, even Felix. But he inherits, when he comes, all the political challenges that a change in leadership encounters, and not, not any less than this prisoner that he has here in Caesarea by the name of Paul. But Festus, ladies and gentlemen, is unlike Felix in one manner that we can see clearly. Festus is not a procrastinator. He doesn't delay judgment. He doesn't push it off till tomorrow. This man gets down to business. And he, in his swift action, especially against those who disturb the peace. And that is what we find in jo Josephus' writings, that Festus was very quick to administer judgment to those who would be against the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He would be quick to come in and administer this justice in order to hold the peace. So Festus 
Luke records, lands in Caesarea, and he immediately goes up to Jerusalem. Now, if you were to be with me in any shape or form, you would know that if you were to look at this from, the, uh, from north, south, east, and west, that you actually don't go up to Jerusalem, that you go down to Jerusalem. You go south. Aha, we've caught you. There's an error in the Bible. No, because every time you read the Bible, it's always going up to Jerusalem. And it's not up in terms of compel directions. It's up in terms of elevation. For Jerusalem is always higher in terms of elevation to Caesarea. And it is true. If you want to know that geographically, you can go do your own study as well. So Luke records that three days. Three days. He lands in Caesarea. He, he gets unpacked. He gets all of his belongings set up in his new place because now he has some business to do. And he's there for three days. And it would be normal for the procurator of the place, for the leader of Caesarea, for the leader of this area, to head to Jerusalem quite expediently. Now you may ask, why would that be? Well, Jerusalem was the capital of religious and cultural significance. Although Caesarea was the capital of, of the governor's mansion, Jerusalem would be quite uh, important. And here we are in our modern day, and none other than this very area is being fought for even this very day. Why? Because it is a hotbed. It is the place where peace would become difficult to maintain. So Festus, he is going to go up to Jerusalem in an effort to kind of uh, sway the parties, if you will. So he is met here by the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews. The chief priests and the many leading men of the Jews. These, would know, know, would, these are likely the ruling elders of the Sanhedrin. And lo and behold, what happens? I wonder if he's coming to them to have a little bit of dinner party, and then one of the first things that it seems they want to take attention to is they, these men are going to bring up their charges against Paul. And according, to, and according to verse 15, they are going to ask for a sentence of condemnation against Paul. In verse 15, you remember it says, And when I was in Jerusalem, here is Festus proclaiming to Agrippa, he says, The chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. So what is happening? They are asking Paul, I mean, I'm sorry, they are asking Festus to find Paul guilty. So no sooner does he arrive that the leaders not only bring charges, but they re begin requesting a concession against Paul for him to be brought back to Jerusalem. This, by the way, this idea of asking for a concession, that he's asking for a favor. There's a lot of favors being handled here, right? Yeah, and I know that shouldn't shock you in our modern day culture, that there are favors being handled among political elites. You know, if you vote for me, I'm going to do you a favor. If you do what I like, I'm going to do you a favor. Hey, by the way, if you can keep your Jewish friends under control, I would love to do you a favor. And by doing you a favor, I will do this and this and this. And that's what's happening. Hey, we're asking for a favor. Why? Why would they ask for Paul, if they're asking him for condemnation, if they're asking him to be found guilty, why would they ask Paul to be brought back to Jerusalem? Well, it's simple. Because they want to kill Paul on the way. Two years later, and they still want to kill Paul. 
This is the reason Paul was taken to Caesarea in the first place. Remember, we studied this last week. But there's been a change, ladies and gentlemen, because the first time that Paul was going to be uh, uh, possibly assassinated on his way, it was by zealots who were urging the religious leaders to merely collaborate. And now it seems, according to, the, uh, to Luke, that these religious leaders are no longer collaborating, but they are the progenitors of the plot themselves. They have went from being assistants to being the very ones who want to see it done. Proverbs 4.16 says of wicked men, for they cannot sleep unless they do evil, and they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. Evil has a long memory because evil has no forgiveness. I, 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 want you to, I want you to get it. This is not something that happened yesterday. This is something that happened two years of animosity. Two years of Paul, by the way, being falsely imprisoned but that's not enough because we want blood. Two years. Two years of evil. Two years of things happening. Two years of animosity. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I will let you know this, that when you hold on to something for that long and you lack the ability to forgive, that is exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants you to hold on to your grudges. Hold on to your lack of forgiveness. All the while you think you are punishing them. Not understanding that you're ultimately doing harm even to yourself. So that's them, but I want to flip the can. I want to flip the switch here a little bit. I want to flip the tables, if you will. Two years of Paul being in prison. We've been sitting here for two years of being falsely imprisoned, y'all. Two years, and now they, they still want to kill us. They still don't like us. They're still talking bad about us. They're still doing all these things that they did before. For two years of sitting in prison, in our modern-day world of quick-service restaurants, microwave ovens, and high-speed Internet, we struggle with the frowning providence of God no long, eh, longer than two minutes, much less two years. Why would God? Have you ever thought about this? <coughs> oh, I have not even thought about it. I've asked the question among myself. Why would God take one of the most useful apostles of his word and put him in prison for two years? Why would God allow that? Where are the angels? Do you think Paul just stopped worshiping in prison all of a sudden? You think Paul didn't find reasons to rejoice? You think, you think the apostle who would write, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, you think in some way, shape, or form that he would just forget. Where is, the, where is the Paul and Silas situation? You know, where the prison doors open and Paul walks out. For two years, this man is in prison. What is God doing? Why would God take one of his most ardent apostles and put him in a prison cell for two years? God, what are you doing with me? Um, Paul, why, were, why are you delaying for me? I mean, Paul. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to ask a question that I have struggled with for the past eight weeks since I wrote the question down. And I'm still struggling with it, to be perfectly honest with you. It's still one that I think about every day, and I just go, man, what does that mean? What does that mean for my life? What if our inefficiency is as much a part of God's strategy as our effectiveness? You see, we live in a culture where we want to be people of effectiveness, of efficiency. We want to be people who, you know, it's always up and to the right. It's always, we're, we're very... Uh, profitable right we want to be profitable or we want to be uh i don't know what's the word i'm looking for we just we just want to be these people who are always um pursuing something and always seeing advancement productive that's the word i'm looking for productive we always want to be productive but what if god what if my unproductivity my inefficiency, what if my failure is as much a part of God's strategy as my effectiveness, uh, my success, and my productivity? What if God is going to use my imprisonment as much as He uses my freedom? Now, I don't know why God delays. People ask me that all the time. Why does God delay? Why does God do this? Why does God do that? I don't have a clue. Half the time, I don't have a clue. But I think you get a hint. How do we get a hint? There are certain books in the Bible that the apostle wrote. And we call them prison epistles. In other words, we believe that he wrote them from being in prison. And I think they enlighten us as to what he was thinking while he was in prison. I think that's fair. One of those books that I think about is the book of Philippians. I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And I think this, I'm not 100% sure. I'm 99.9% and if you roll that up you would be to 100%. So I'm fairly confident in this. But I think this has something to do with it. I think we get a hint from Paul what he sees in relationships to God's delays and to God imprisoning him. Listen to chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 12 through 14. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Did you get that? The providence of God in the midst of our delays, in the midst of our own purpose, in the mi- um, pain, in the midst of our own suffering. I want to read that last sentence again because it just hit me fresh. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, which is a phrase that just boggles my mind, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. What if 
God's providence leads to your pain so that others could be encouraged to also endure it without fear. What if God is doing through you what he's doing to you? What if your pain is the midst of another person's encouragement? What if your two-year imprisonment is the midst of helping other people to also endure what they are going to have to experience in their pain? Again, I come back to us and I go this. What if you are not the actual main character in the story? What if there's a bigger story that you're playing a part in? Oh, this changes the way I see things in my own life. But apparently, the anger, getting back to our book here, in the book of Acts, chapter 25, apparently we see that the anger hadn't subsided, and neither has their desire to kill the apostle. Ah, I thought about this. I wonder where those guys are who committed to themselves to never eat or drink again until the apostle was dead. Where would they be right now? dead at the very least they would be a little bit hungry or a little bit thirsty yes if they were men of integrity they would be dead from going hungry they would be dead from not getting anything if they were men of integrity they would be very hungry and they would be very thirsty but oh let me say this like most people who make vows today that they don't intend to keep I bet they pardon themselves from their own stupidity That's what's happening. We make vows we don't intend to keep. And so we pardon ourselves from our own stupidity. Let us not be men who do that. Let us be men who we make vows we stick to our vows. Festus, by the way, who seems to be unaware of either the previous plot or the current plot, there's no indication in here that Festus is aware of any, either of the plots. What he answers, though, he answers that Paul is still in custody in Caesarea. And according to verse 16, he tells them that he can't hand over a man who is accused without a trial. So it's likely that he's unaware of what happened with Felix and his trial, because remember, Felix said what? I don't find anything wrong with this man. So apparently, he understands that now he is the leader, and, any, and regardless that he is not going to accept Felix's <laughs> judgment of the apostle, he is going to urge them to let some of their leaders or their influential men go with him, and if there's anything wrong, they could prosecute Paul face to face. So Festus doesn't seem to have any desire to just turn Paul over since Paul was under his rule, and he doesn't seem to be aware of the trial of Felix either. So this is where we are. Felix has been pressured, and now we're going to have another trial. And next we turn, in verse 6, we're turning to Paul's appeal. The Bible says that Festus is going to spend 8 or 10 days in Jerusalem. I found that funny from Luke. 8 or 10. 8 or 10. Not 9. 8 or 10. I like that. Eight or ten days in Jerusalem, and it says that he's getting acquainted before traveling down to Caesarea. The day following his arrival into Caesarea, so he's going to travel back, and when he comes back, 
uh, uh, Luke writes that Festus takes his seat on the tribunal. The tribunal, we would call this the judgment seat or the bema seat. So he's going to sit on this judgment seat and he's going to order Paul to be brought to him. And apparently, the Jews have asked acquiesced to the terms and travel the 60 plus miles, the two days journey himself. And after Paul arrives, the Jews who come from Jerusalem, the Bible says, stand around him. So number one, I want you to notice that they're standing around Paul. They're going to bring many and serious charges against Paul, which, by the way, they could not prove. So imagine with me the intimidation. The intimidation. All these Jewish leaders are surrounding him physically. They're accusing him legally. And they're trying to intimidate this, this guy who is of no stature. I don't think Paul was a man that you would look at and go, man, this, is, this, is a, this guy is scared. This guy's scary. As a matter of fact, when you read Paul, you had no reason to fear him. The only reason to fear him is because he came with spirit and power. So here they are trying to intimidate this guy. Why are they trying to intimidate him? Because, ladies and gentlemen, when evil can't defeat you intellectually, they will always result in displays of power and intimidation. Although they, we will be accused, ladies and gentlemen, and mistreated, we are reminded of something that's simple and true. That the judge of all will hold all men accountable. That there may be a day in which I will stand before a trial and be found guilty, and I may be mistreated. But there will be a day in which that court also will be held accountable. This is why I would encourage those of you who want to go into legal uh, um, uh, um, vocations, be a judge. I would always caution you that no matter what this country may say to you, that you be aware that in order to be a judge, you will be held accountable for that judgment. Because there's a greater justice coming. Ultimate justice is coming. And I want to remind us of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said this, Blessed are you, think about this, blessed, happy. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they now persecute you. So rejoice. Rejoice because you are persecuted. That's just not what I hear in the modern church. What I hear in the modern church is if we're being persecuted, we must be doing something wrong. And what I'm saying is often the reason you're being persecuted is because we're doing something very right. I don't think we have any reason to doubt or wonder what the, fee, what the charges are who, that are here. We, we talked about them last week. They have, they're written for us in the case before Felix. And here Paul is going to respond with the same three in his defense. I've committed no offense against either the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. The more things change, the more things seem to stay the same. 
However, we do discover something in Paul's conversation with Agrippa later that up to this point hasn't been really revealed to us by Luke. And I think this is very important. It's in verses 18 and 19. I hope you caught it because when we are here, when the, uh, the, the Bible says that when the accuser stood up, remember this is, I'm sorry, this is Festus describing to Agrippa. He says, when the accuser stood up, I'm in verse 18, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. But they had some, simply some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and what? And about a dead man, Jesus whom Paul asserted to be alive. Disagreements about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. So all of the other stuff is cloudy. All of the other stuff is amidst. All of the other stuff is amused. All the other stuff is just merely non-thinking gibberish. What is at the heart of this entire deal? And here we're getting to it. It has nothing to do with him uh, talking about Caesar. He hasn't said anything about Caesar or trying to defeat that. He hasn't said anything bad about the temple or about Jewish law. He hasn't done anything of that. What is the problem? The problem is that Paul asserts Jesus to be resurrected. By the way, Festus, as a Roman procurator, was primarily over the charges against Caesar. But apparently he, like Felix, was not convinced. And this was the only charge that would cause Paul to remain in Roman custody because the other two accusations were to be held by the Jewish courts. So if he was guilty of breaking Jewish law, then he would ultimately send him back to the Jewish courts for the Jews to hold him. And Luke writes, like Felix, Festus wishes to do the Jews a favor. What is up with this? What's up with these Roman guys always wanting to do the Jews a favor? What about justice? Where has that gone? What about doing what is justice? What about doing what is right? When, when you ethically remove justice from a culture, it begins to be what is ever profitable and favorable for the party in hand, in charge. And this is exactly what's happening here. Because the desire to do the Jews a favor was politically understandable, if you think about it. They wield great power. They had influence over all those in the region. Remember that back in Jerusalem, they requested a favor that Festus didn't agree to. But here, it seems Festus wants to do something to earn their favor. And according to verse 20, he is at an absolute loss at how to investigate these matters. It says in verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate such matters, Al asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial on these matters. I didn't know what to do. I was at a loss. I didn't know what to do. And so he asked Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before these men? Before me on these charges? And notice that Festus said before me. So what he's trying to do here is he's trying to assure Paul that he would still be over a Roman trial in the Jews' jurisdiction. But Festus' motives are clear. He desires favor. Now, if you were Paul, have you heard this before? Who else wanted to do 
the Jews a favor? Felix. And how did that end up for the apostle? Two years of imprisonment. So I think Paul's not too keen on helping people who are going to do the Jews a favor again. I wouldn't be. Speaking of that, do you ever wonder what's happening behind closed doors in old D.C.? Huh? You see, what's new is not new. It's the same. Doing favors behind closed doors. I don't care if you're a donkey or an elephant. I don't care if you're blue or you're red. I don't care if you're this or you're that. I don't care if you're pro or anti. Everybody's doing everybody a favor. And what happens when we do this? When we create a culture where favors are more important than justice is you will always find injustice. So Paul responds, aware of this idea that Festus wants to do these guys a favor. I'm where I ought to be before Caesar's tribunal. This is really a rebuke of Paul. Paul says, I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. Paul knew there would be no justice in Jerusalem. More importantly, he knew that there was this idea that possibly he would even be killed back in Jerusalem. But there is something that is even over all this. What would Paul have in the back of his mind as an, ident as an identifying characteristic of why he would not go back to Jerusalem? Paul, if he can free you by going back to Jerusalem, why don't you go back to Jerusalem? Paul, why don't you just stop appealing all these things and just... Just figure all this out and just let it be. What would have happened between now and then that would have made Paul say, I appeal to Caesar? Do y'all remember? Do y'all remember back in chapter 24, verse 27? I'm sorry, uh, uh, back in chapter 24, when Paul is standing before God, I'm standing before uh, 23, verse 11, excuse me. 23, verse 11. Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin, before the council. But on the night immediately following the Lord stood at his bedside, take, take courage, for as you solemnly have witnessed to my calls at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Paul knew what he was about. Paul knew where he was going. Paul knew that he was going to go to Rome. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it's not that Paul is scared to die. He is not scared to die, but he will refuse to die unjustly. So if none of these things are true, no one can hand me over. And there it is. Paul is saying, all you are doing, he is revealing, to him, revealing here to Festus that he knows exactly what Festus is up to. All you are doing is handing me over. You are clouding and shrouding all this in some gibberish. You are actually wanting me to go there to hand me over. Paul is aware of Festus's desires to please. And here, what is he going to do? He's going to make use of the normal means of God's grace. In other words, his governing opportunity of his citizenship. And he's going to say, I appeal to Caesar. Paul, what are you doing? Paul is submitting to the governing authorities. 
Paul is making every use of his citizenship. Remember when he writes to the Romans? He writes this, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. For it is a minister of God for you, uh, to you for good. That's Romans 13, uh, verses 1 through 4. You see, what Paul sees, he sees Festus as a minister of God in civil matters, and he knew he was, be, he was going to be subject to the laws of the land. Because faith family government is set up to do good. And as long as government is doing good, then that is what we are to obey. As long as the government does not ask the believer to do something which would be unchristian or unbiblical, then we as Christians are to submit to our government. Now, we don't know everything about this process, but it seems that a Roman citizen had the right to appeal to a final appeal before Caesar. Now, we do know that Festus had the right to deny this appeal. Festus could have very well said, I deny it. But it seems due to the fact that Festus is aware of him not being guilty, that he is not in a position to deny it. As a matter of fact, Festus, the Bible says that Festus confers with his counsel. Who's his counsel? Well, a procurator at this time would have an advisory counsel. A group of people who would stand around him and would basically weigh his administrative options. And I wonder what that meeting was like. Well, if you let him go, that's going to cause problems. If you kill him, we know he's not guilty. That's not right. He's appealed to Caesar. I mean, Festus. He's appealed to Caesar. Do you know what happens if he appeals to Caesar? We let him go. He's out of our hair. He's out of the Jewish hair. We ain't got to deal with the problems no more. And just like the two procreators before him, he can wash his hands of the old, old thing. Right? We can just wash our hands of the whole thing. And we'll just push it off and push it off and push it off. So he makes the decision that very well then. To Caesar you want to go, to Caesar you will go. I mean, I'm new here. I'm 10 days in, into this thing. I don't want any more trouble than I need. So I'm going to send you to Caesar and get you out of my hair because I can tell this is going to be a big problem. You want to go to Nero? Go to Nero. So ladies and gentlemen, we need to get our packing in order because I think we're going to go on a road trip. Ready? So Paul is sent back to prison cell. He's going to start packing his things, whatever that may mean. And him and a group of people are going to get ready. And they're going to head to Rome. But we have a visit. We have the visit of Agrippa in 13 through 22. Luke writes that several days have elapsed and a visitor arrives in Caesarea. King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. 
This is the son of the first Herod Agrippa, whose death we know of back in Acts chapter 12. It wasn't a too pleasant death, by the way. Do you remember how he died? Do you remember what he died? Let's go back, let's go back. Acts chapter 12. For grins and giggles. He had just heard about a man by the name of Peter. Turn to verse 20, <laughs> verse 20 of cha- verse 12, chapter 12. Now he was very angry, he being Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. With one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's county, country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of God and not of man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, I look back at, at, at the book of Luke, and I read that, and I go, no, that's, that's, that's funny. So you got Herod, who's going to die, and by the way, oh, and Barnabas and Paul are doing their thing. And now here we have, we have Herod's son coming to Caesarea to, to do what? To do n- to none other than to question Paul himself. By the way, this man is also the nephew of Herod of Antipas. If you want to kind of start putting these people together, Herod Agrippa was his son. We saw him die in verse 12. Was his father, saw him die in chapter 12. He is the nephew of Herod of Antipas, which was the the one who murdered John the Baptist and who judged Jesus. He is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was alive at the death of all the babies, who murdered all the babies because of Jesus. So this man was all up in this, this whole story. He was born according to what we know in 27 AD. He would be reared in Rome. In 48 AD, he would begin to rule, and he would see his kingdom expand, although he would never reign over the main Jewish territory of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, as his father had. He remained under the jurisdiction of the procurators. He held, he held authority as the king of the Jews, to appoint high priest, and that's why he was, had the, the title king of the Jews. Bernice, his sister, would be married to her uncle at the age of 13, who was called Herod of Chalice. Herod of Chalcis would die in AD 48, and her, her brother Herod would be granted rule over all Herod of Chalcis's reign. So his sister would move in with him and remain with him for many years. Now, there was quite the rumor that Herod and his sister were involved in an incestuous relationship. She will become the mistress to a man by the name of Titus. Titus was the son of the emperor Vespasian, and this would create a major scandal all throughout. 
So why am I telling you all this? There is drama, yo. And you have to know what's happening because when Agrippa and Bernice are going to sit down with the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul are gonna make, are, is going to make a certain preaching assignment to them and you know the back history, you know what's happening, now you're going to sit back and go, Paul ain't no joke. He's already done it with Felix. He's already done it with Festus. And we're going to see that he's going to have a chance to do it with Agrippa. And here the Bible says that they're going to spend many days with Paul. Festus knows that Agrippa is someone who is in a position to assist him in Paul's situation. Why? Because remember, Agrippa has influence over the Jews. So Festus says Paul is not guilty of any crime. He's only guilty for believing in this resurrection of this man by the name of Jesus. And intrigued by it all, Agrippa wants to hear Paul himself. The imperfect language here suggests that possibly Agrippa had been wanting to hear from Paul for a long time. And now, finally, Agrippa will hear from Paul. So Festus, who is known already as a man of action, says, then Agrippa, tomorrow you're going to hear from him. I wonder what Agrippa's going to say. I wonder what Paul's going to say to Agrippa. Well, for now, you will have to wait. Because for us, tomorrow is next Sunday. And we will pick that up then. It ought to be of little wonder or amazement to us when we seem to be living lives in a constant state of accusation. It seems at times to come from every area. When we are to live lives in constant consternation, when we are confused by all the situations and circumstances, the cancelings, the accusations, the problems, what are we to do, church, in the midst of all of it as we seek to live our lives with a clear conscience before God? And I think it's nothing less than what we said last week. It's the message of Paul's ministry given to him by Christ. That in the next seven days, here's what I'm going to tell you we need to do. We need to take courage. I know many of you are facing situations where fear is real. Some of you may be being accused of things that may cost you your, your, your vocation. Take courage. Some of you may be facing situations physically that very well, very well may cause you, cost you your life. Take courage. Take courage and withstand the accusations of the devil and those who do his bidding. Take courage, church, when Satan comes and he is going to accuse you because he is an accuser of the saints. 
Take courage when he comes into your mind and reminds you of the sinner that you were, that you was, and reminds you of how you have failed and reminds you of all the things that you have not done. Take courage in the fact that you are not as effective or efficient or productive as you possibly could have been in the past week. Take courage because our God can use our inefficiency in the midst of his will. You know, it was Peter. Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. That's what I hear all the time by believers. Oh, this is new. You don't understand, Pastor, what I'm going through. You don't understand what's happening in my life. Pastor, this is so original. I'm going through something that nobody has ever gone through ever before. Take courage in this. You are going through nothing that other people haven't gone through. Other people have gone through sickness. Other people have gone through brokenness. Other people have gone through accusations. But listen to what Peter says. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. To the degree in which you share in the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing. Did you hear it? We rejoice to the degree of our suffering. That is unbelievably helpful. So to the depth of your suffering ought to be the height of your rejoicing. Is that what you experience? Or do you find the depth of your suffering to be the depth of your misery? Does your joy go into your depth or does your joy retreat from your depth? I'm going to continue because I want to finish this. To the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now make sure... That none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. I like that last one. I like the fact that he puts it in line of the other ones. Now, we would all have said, yes, we, won't, we, won't, we don't want to suffer as, as a murderer. Oh, that's not good. A thief, mm. an evildoer, bad. A troublesome meddler. That's where we check our toes a little bit, right? Because some of you like to meddle and just meddle. You all up in people's business. You're just troublesome. You ever met those people? They're just all troublesome. It's always like they're trying to get around and sneak around. And they're just all up in people's. Stop being meddling up in people's business. You got enough business of your own. Preach. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. So over the next seven days, until we gather again, until we come to the normal means of God's grace for the instruction of God's people, which is the preaching and teaching of his word, as we gather together on a Sunday morning. Church, listen to me. For the next seven days, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised by it all as it's though some strange thing. But listen, he comes and he says, for our testing and to the degree that we share in the sufferings, we are to rejoice.
And if we suffer as a Christian, it is not a means of shame, but a means of glorifying God in His name. So church, I say, may we live lives that remove the stain of any false report of sinful behavior. May we fail to see You see, what we fail to see is that in the midst of this false imprisonment of the apostle, in the midst of this jail sentence of the apostle, Paul is being granted the opportunity to influence those he would have never had the opportunity to do without the imprisonment. And Agrippa's desire is to hear Paul give, uh, gives Paul an occasion to hear Paul's defense and to hear the gospel once again. A defense in which we will study and we will be amazed. But don't miss it. Paul's persecution, Paul's greatest trial, Paul's false imprisonment gave him a chance to share a sermon and to share a defense. And as I have said numerous times to you already, Often, church, it is not in the absence of suffering, but it is through our suffering. May we be found faithful. May we be found faithful. May we have the courage to be His people. And no matter the means of God's amazing grace, when we are given the chance, may we have the courage to provide a defense of the hope that is in us as well. Are you ready? Are you ready to live a life of persecution? Well, that's not really rallying the troops, Pastor. That's really not, that's not your, that's not the best way to get a bunch of people, you know, to join the old church. I, I am trying to do something that I have, I have committed to doing something for my entire ministry here. And that is to preach the word of God and be faithful to the word of God. Because I realize that if we can come together and be prepared to endure persecution, that is when we're going to find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in him. Because when we think that this world is going to provide it, that is when. That is when we're in the most danger. We're in the most danger. So will you please stand to your feet as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Let us prepare our hearts now for participating in His Supper. For those of you who are in here who do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would do it now. If you are not a believer in Christ, we are going about to participate in the Lord's Supper. We would call for those of you who, are do, not, uh, who do not believe in Christ not to participate, for this is the Lord's Supper. And if you don't call Him Lord... You don't participate in this supper. But for those of us who are his children, I pray that as we participate and as we begin to prepare our hearts for walking forward, that we would not come forward in an unworthy manner. So as the elders of this church, one of the things that we have decided to do in order to not make that happen is to give a moment that we can go before our God in a a time of silence before God and we can go before him and not come to this table in an unworthy manner. So church, I pray and I hope that in the next few moments, that we would confess our sin before God. That we would go before Him to receive His grace, to receive His mercy, so that we can come to this table and be reminded of His goodness and grace.
So church, with every head bowed and every eye closed, let us go before our great God and King, confessing our sin before him together. Amen? Let us pray.